This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Diane Armstrong, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Now, we're back in person. Yes. Isn't Isn't that wonderful? I love it. I really, really... I mean, you know, Zoom is so convenient, but having people here one-on-one... No no substitute for real contact. Absolutely not. Let me introduce you. Diane was born in Poland and arrived in Australia with her parents in 1948 as a child Holocaust survivor. She had a highly successful career as a freelance journalist before she received a grant to write her memoir, Mosaic, a Chronicle of Five Generations. It was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Her first novel, Winter Journey, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and she wrote subsequent novels, Nocturne and Empire Day. Is that right? And The Collaborator. And The Collaborator. There you go. We missed that one. Which is what you were in for last time. Yes. We talked about The Collaborator. Yes. Oh, there we go. Uh, Her latest book, Dancing with the Enemy, is a compelling historical read set in the German-occupied Jersey during World War II. Now, wow. Um, So you're still writing. Yes. Why, Why still well, because sometimes when people transfer from one career to the next, it's not necessarily something that sticks. Okay. But it has for you. Well, it just feels natural to me. That's just what I love doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell me about Dancing with the Enemy. Well, it's had a very long history. You know, you talk about an elephant's gestation period. Well, I think this would be the book equivalent of an elephant's gestation. It started really back in 1987. I visited Jersey for the first time. I was on my own and I had no idea what to expect. All I knew was I wanted to go somewhere different that I didn't know anything about. And what I found out absolutely blew me away. It started off, I was driving around on my own and I was struck by these gorgeous manor houses, granite manor houses that looked ancient. And one in particular struck me and it looked like something out of a gothic novel or a gothic movie. It was gorgeous. And I stood there and I got out of the car, pressed my nose against the railing and I stood there gaping. And to my enormous embarrassment, the Lord of the Manor opened the front door and came straight towards me. And I felt like a rabbit caught in the headlights and I couldn't run. I I just stood there. But he was very gracious and very kind. And we chatted a bit and he said, where are you from? And I said, Australia. And he said, oh, what a coincidence. I'm just on my way to the airport to pick up someone who claims to be a relative of mine from Australia. 
would you like to come back in an hour's time and you can meet your fellow countrymen? And I thought, well, I'm not all that interested in my fellow countrymen. I didn't come to Jersey to meet fellow countrymen, but I would love to get inside that manor house. And so I did. And it was just as grand and baronial as, as I had hoped. He started talking about his own family. And to my absolute astonishment, it turned out that he could trace his family back to William the Conqueror. Wow. Yeah. And then he went on to talk about his family history, which was extraordinary. Was that the guy that owned the manor house? It was. Yeah. And what about the Australian? I don't know. You didn't wait around? <laughs> no, I wasn't interested in the Australian. I was only interested in the manor house and, right. and its owner. And it was really quite amazing. The following day in Jersey, I went to their occupation museum and I found out that Jersey like the other Channel Islands, had been occupied by the Germans for almost the entire length of the of World War II. And I didn't know that. And the um, museum had all kinds of exhibits. Among the exhibits was a notice that was placed by the Germans in 1941, and it invited all the young women of Jersey to come to a dance that they held at a particular time and place. And that I stood there for a moment and it struck me there were girls there that danced with the enemy. Mm. Mm, beautiful. That's what happened. And I think that that happened all throughout Europe as well. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So dancing with the enemy was really in a way a metaphor for not only what happened in Jersey but what happens when mm. people are trying to manoeuvre their lives, trying to make some kind of accommodation with the reality of being occupied and being in danger. That is so true, Diane. It's so true. My parents uh, were, they're both passed now, but they were both Lebanese and they came to um, Australia in the 50s and 60s. But War, as you know, has been um, a feature in that country, unfortunately. And I remember one, I was born here, but, you know, I've been back a couple of times. And one of the first times I went back, there was civil war. And I remember how much people tried to get on with their lives and ignore the war, ignore what was happening around them. And one time my aunts took me to a restaurant to have dinner and I could hear I could hear bombs or I could hear something. And I remember thinking, I'm too scared to go out. But they weren't. They were, they're trying for themselves and their families to make it as ordinary as possible. Yes. I think it's a sort of a defence mechanism, isn't it? It to is. To try and pretend that everything's normal. Yeah. And then when we came back, they said, oh, do you want to stop and have a coffee at a patisserie? And I'm like, oh, no, no, just take me home. I'm so nervous. And we stopped at the patisserie and there were soldiers and guns and, you know, and being an Australian, we're not used to that. But here they did. They, they sat there, had the coffee, offered the soldiers some coffee. Um, talk to me about your memory of growing up as a child. Holocaust survivor? I was very small, so my memories of that period depend very heavily on what my parents have told me. Mm, of course. But there was one scene that has stayed in my memory that my father recollected, and that was we were living in a little village. Where were you living? We were, li well, 
we started off in Lvov, which is, of course, today Lviv. Mm. And when I see the footage of what's happening in Ukraine today, people leaving the country, not knowing where they're going to end up. Mm. It was very similar because we also fled from Lviv. It was then part of Poland mm. and it was called Lvov. We had to leave because by then almost all the Jewish people had either been rounded up, sent to the terrible concentration camp they had there, or just murdered. Mm. And at the time that we left, the Germans were looking for Jewish children. Mm. So my parents knew that... We had to get out of there. The and how did you get out? Like, was it something where you just pack what you can carry and no, walk was, through the night? It was not as simple as that. Wow. Because if you moved to a place, if you stayed where you were, you were in danger that your neighbours would dob you in. Mm-hmm. If you moved to somewhere where nobody knew you, they were suspicious of you. Why did you move here? Mm-hmm. You must be Jewish. So... It was like a catch-22 through a whole series of the most incredibly miraculous coincidences, if that's what they were. My father found out that there was a village in the eastern part of Poland that needed a dentist. He was a dentist. And so we had a valid reason for being in that village. So we went to the village, but almost from the first moment... And, of course, we had to pretend to be Catholic. We had to go to Mass. My parents had never been inside a church before. And all the time there were these sort of um, glances from the locals wondering, Mm. suspecting. And the Gestapo were just down the road. The, The incident I was going to tell you about, I must have been four we changed our name because we had a name that sound, didn't sound Catholic and Polish. It, it sounded more like it could be Jewish. Mm. So my, before we even moved, my father had to go and register under a different name. So this is the scene. I'm four years old. I'm playing in the yard of the place where we're living in this little village where we don't know anybody. And a neighbor stops by, sees me in the yard, And he says, oh, little girl, what's your name? So I gave him our new Polish name. My name is Danusia Bogusławska. And he said, yes, but what was your name before? (sighs) Now, my father was standing in the doorway of the house and he heard this and he knew if I said anything other than this was always our name, that would be the end of us. But apparently I stamped my little foot and I said in my most indignant four-year-old voice, that's always been my name. And he went away. It's an extraordinary story on so many levels, also that a four-year-old could do that, you know, because, I mean, it's, I just know through the kids that I know, you know, sometimes when you're trying to buy a train ticket or whatever, and you say to them, I'll pretend you're two. Oh, I'm not two, you know, (laughs) they don't want to pretend (laughs) they're something that they're not. So extraordinary that as a four-year-old you did that, and probably because you felt the fear as well. I think so. Well, Mm. you know, 50 years later... I returned to Poland because I was then researching Mosaic, my first Mm. book. And by another amazing set of coincidences, I found the priest who had been in the village and who actually, whose friendship had saved us because while all the neighbours were 
going to him and saying, these people are Jews, we should hand them in. He just, he loved my father. They played chess together and he just kept playing chess. He kept coming to our house and playing chess. And my parents were no longer alive when I was doing the research for Mosaic. So I, I had no way of tracing him or finding out anything. Again, as I said, these incredible, miraculous coincidences led me to his door. And we stood and he remembered me as a three-year-old. And that's when he really handed back to me a part of my childhood because he said to me, you were always so timid. Whenever you said anything, you would look questioningly at your parents as if to say, have I said the right thing? Or more importantly, I haven't said the wrong thing, have I? Mm -hmm. So even as a three-year-old, I had this wariness, this fear of saying the wrong mm. thing, knowing that there were secrets that had to be kept. Mm. And so how? tell me about the journey from Poland to Australia. Well, that was the material for my second book, The Voyage of Their Life. I traced about 120 passengers who had been on that ship in 1948. And we were a motley crew. We were refugees from all over Europe. There were Greeks, Russians, Estonians, Latvians, Poles, Hungarians, Greeks, you name it. Mm. And the stories that I heard were just extraordinary. Mm. And um, just to give you an example of how I came across these people, because I started off, I had no idea how to find anyone. Mm. Again, my parents were no longer alive, so... I thought, well, maybe the Australian archives have something about our ship. Mm. And I applied. And to my amazement, a huge box arrived. And it turned out that we'd made headlines when we arrived because people on the ship had said there are communists on board. 1948, the red fear, mm. you know, huge. reds under the beds. Absolutely. So that was one thing. There were questions asked in Parliament. Why was this ship with all these communists allowed to arrive in Australia? But the archives gave me a manifest of the passenger list. So I had a list of people, but I didn't know where they were now, if they were still alive, if they were women, whether they had married. But I had a list. What the list did give me was the nationalities. And I noticed there were a lot of Estonians on the ship. How do you find an Estonian? So how old were you when you were on that ship? Nine. Nine. So your parents decided it was time to leave Poland. Yes. Were they feeling under threat still? Yes, yeah. yes. My parents wanted to get as far away from Europe as possible. Mm-hmm. My mother's only surviving relative was one sister. Mm-hmm. Her parents, her other sister and her child and her brother had been murdered in Lvov, Lviv, during the war. Mm. So they just wanted to get away from Europe because anti-Semitism was still rife Mm. and they could see the writing on the wall that there was Mm. no future for us there. Mm. And because my aunt, by then she and her husband had survived Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, they'd come to Brisbane where my uncle had a cousin who'd sent them a permit (laughs) And that cousin sent us a permit as well. well. And that's why we ended up in Mm. Australia. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. And how long was that journey? Well, it was supposed to take six weeks but it actually took nearly three months because everything that could possibly go wrong with a ship went wrong. Mm. After People we, often don't survive the journey, are well, they, do they? Well, yeah. most of us did survive the journey, but the ship almost didn't. Mm. Fires broke out and the crew had no idea how to use the fire hoses. Um, the refrigeration failed and they had to throw rotting meat overboard. The engines failed. Mm. everything that could possibly befall a ship. And there were fights. Mm. The crew were Greek and Italian. And at night, after everyone had gone after dinner, they used to attack each other with flick knives. Mm. There were fights among the passengers because there were Holocaust survivors and there were people from countries which had allied with the Germans. So there were conflicts there as well. And how many people would have been on that ship? There were 545 of us on the ship. And the ship wow. yeah, was a lot of people to control. A lot of people on a ship which originally was built in World War I mm. as a cargo ship. And there were initially, when Levanos, the Greek um, uh, magnate, bought the ship, it was only accommodating nine people. So I think in about five minutes flat, he converted it to accommodate 545 people. There were no washing facilities, no laundry facilities. Mm. It, it, it was really, mm. when you think back, mm. a hell ship. So did you come, where did you come to, Brisbane or did you come No, to? we came to Melbourne and actually it was Melbourne Cup Day when we arrived and nobody could understand <laughs> what was going on and why everything was closed. Yeah. But we only stopped in Melbourne in order to get the plane to Brisbane and we right. stayed in Brisbane for six months with my aunt. But we arrived with nothing and the nothing that we had was even made smaller by the fact that most of our things were stolen at the wharf in Melbourne. So you really had nothing. We we had nothing. And in tell, tell me what your first impression of Brisbane was or Australia or Melbourne. Tell me what you thought. I mean it's such a long way and such a long journey. It was heaven. Heaven. The skies were blue. Mm. The sun was shining. Mm. There were exotic flowers. There was exotic fruit. It was people weren't scared. People were friendly. People were smiling. Mm. It, it was, even though I couldn't speak English when I arrived, mm. I was aware that I'd really come to... You felt uh, it. Yes, it was heaven. Mm. Mm. Do you know, even when I come and go now, because I do a lot of travelling, as you know, the first thing I notice when I get off that plane in Sydney is how bright 
Sydney is compared to where usually I'm either in the in Europe or the USA. And another thing I notice is how big the sky is. Yes. Mm. The light. Mm. And the light, yeah. So you arrive in Brisbane with nothing. My father was told that he would have to study another three, four years in Brisbane. He had to do the entire dentistry course again. Now, he had been a dentist for 25 years by then. Mm. Anyway, but then he found out that in Sydney, he only had to study for three years. Now, one year made a big difference. It does make a difference when you don't have anything. Yeah, so that's why we came to Sydney. Yeah. And my mother supported us. She went to work in a clothing factory. She used to bring home bags of skirts and toppers and jackets and things to him. Mm. And that's how she supported us while my father was studying. Mm. My father was studying in a foreign language. Mm. Tell me about your first day of school, because I have a very strong memory of school because I couldn't speak English either, but I was six, not nine. Tell me your experience. Well, I can remember learning my first word. I went to school and it was a mixed class, boys and girls, primary school, of course. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and the teacher's going, gabble, gabble, gabble. I don't understand a so word. So you were in year four. Would yes. that have been year four? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And at one stage, the teacher gabbled and then she said, next. And a little boy stood up. In those days, yeah. you stood up when you spoke to a teacher that yeah. Shows you how long ago that was. Yes. <laughs> and she said next and a little boy stood up and I pricked up my ears and I thought, oh, his name must be next. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, he said whatever. Yes. And he sat down and she gabbled on and then she said next again. And another little boy stood up and I thought, so this is a next. weird country. All the little <laughs> boys are called next. But then to my great relief and enlightenment, the next time she said next, a little girl stood up and that's when the light bulb went on. I thought, yeah. ah, that's what that means. So yeah. that's how I remember yeah. learning my first word. Do you know, I had a similar experience because you used to have to, when they did the roll call, right, and they would say present. Uh-huh. And I went home and told my mother that we needed to give her a present because <laughs> yeah. every day she was asking for a present <laughs> until my sisters told me otherwise. Um, uh-huh. And so you went through the education system. Why did you? Why did you want to be a journalist? Talk to me about that. I didn't set out to be a journalist. I wanted to be a writer, uh, and that you did, knew that from early on. I, when I was seven, I told my mother I wanted to be a writer. Now, why? I was an only child. There was no television. There was no iPhones. There were no um, computers. So you're a reader. I was a voracious reader mm. and I wanted to be a writer. And I, was on, I spent a lot of time by myself reading. Yeah. So I fell into journalism. Because there, was, there wouldn't have been a creative writing course then, would I there? didn't do any creative writing courses. No. I just started writing. Right. Okay. So you studied journalism. Did no, you work? I didn't study journalism. Oh, you didn't? No. Sorry. Okay. No, I didn't. I did an arts degree. I majored in English and history. My father wanted me to be a dentist and I said, I'm going to be a writer. So right. he said, so what will you study? I said, I'll study arts. And he said, but what will you do with the arts? Will you teach? I said, God forbid. I don't want to teach. I'm going to write. As it happened, I did teach when I was in London and that teaching experience, which was a bit challenging to say the least, gave me the material for the first article that I ever wrote when I came back to Australia. And that's what started me in journalism. Ah, 
Ah, so who did you write that article for? It was the only magazine I knew, the Women's Weekly. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And they published it and over two pages they wanted my photograph and I thought, this is amazing. You write something, it gets published. Everybody I knew read the Women's Weekly, so everybody yeah, read it. Time. And I got 10 guineas and I thought, this is amazing. Yeah. And that's how I fell into journalism. Because it was a weekly at the time. It was. I mean, now it's a monthly. It was. Yeah. Wow. How extraordinary. Yes. So you kind of fell into writing pieces. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You're a great storyteller even. Well, I mean, and that's how it all starts, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. So that's how you earned money. Did you do that for a while? I did that for quite a few years because I, again, by accident, I fell into being a travel writer. Right. And that was that's a, a good job. <laughs> well, it was accidental. Right. It, it just made me believe that if you take opportunities when they arise, they lead to other things. Absolutely. Doors open. Yeah. I had no intention of being a journalist. I had no intention of being a travel writer. And the travel writing began because I was writing feature articles about anything I was interested in. I interviewed people. I wrote all sorts of things about medical issues, women's issues, whatever I was interested in. And one day, friends of mine came back from Romania, and this was in the time of Ceausescu, and um, they told a horrific story. And I was so taken by this story that I wrote it up, and I sent it to the editor of The Australian, who I wrote for quite often. And he rang me and he said, what's this thing you've written? It's not fowl or or fish. He said, it's, I I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, well, it's not your experience and it's not a travel article. Have you been anywhere? Well, at that point, my husband, my late husband had been invited to be a speaker at a cardiology conference in Mexico. And I said, yes, I've been to Mexico. He said, well, write me 2000 words on Mexico and I did. And that's how I started. He said, well, come and see me. I'd never been to an editor's office. I had this rosy idea of sort of wonderful offices and it was nothing like that. It was like a rabbit warren with (laughs) cubicles. And he said, where else have you been? Well, I'd been to traveling around Europe in a camper van for six months And I told him, yes, before we came back to Australia, because we'd been to England. And he said, I want you to write me an article every week about somewhere you've been. And I was very excited until I came home and I freaked out. I'd never done anything like that. I'd never had deadlines unless I set them myself. And suddenly I had to do an article every week. But that's how it started. So driving around in a camper van back then, would that have been as popular as it is now? It was very popular. Well, first of all, this was the thing that you did when you finished your university course. You went to England to specialise when you were a doctor, which my late husband was. Yes. So that's that's what we did. Everyone went to England and from Mm. England they Mm. set off to the continent. Right. And... um, because we didn't have any money like most people in that, you know, you just finished your uni course. So starting out. Being, travelling in a camper van was, it was just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I know lots of people that are doing it now because of COVID. So had you decided uh, the whole way that you want to come back and live in Australia? There was never never any question that we would come back. Okay. We loved living in England. We made wonderful friends. Mm. We 
I lived in England too. Well, you know what it's like. It's, yes. it's incredible. Yes. I mean, you know, you could live there for 20 years. I lived in Notting Hill. Loved it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we lived in Maida Vale. Oh, right. Yeah, just up I, the road. And I taught in a little Dickensian <laughs> school called Sarum Hall. Right. And it was amazing. But we never wanted to stay there. And when I got pregnant, we knew that we would be coming back to Australia. Yeah. Tell me, did your parents ever get to go home? No. No. It wasn't home. They didn't want to. Their experiences mm. had been so mm. negative. Mm. My father actually wrote a short memoir for me about his life before the war, and it was full of very um, distressing anti Semitic events. Mm. And especially after the war, when they'd lost almost all their families, and the atmosphere was still. Mm not conducive to multiculturalism. Mm. Um, they they never wanted to go back. Mm. It, was, it was a big cemetery for them. Mm. just makes me so sad how we treat refugees. We're still doing the yes. same here. It's terrible. Yes. I was just reading the other day about those nine people that were in a hotel for nine years. Oh, that's just appalling. It's awful, yes. isn't it? Shocking. Why? We wouldn't do that to an animal. No, terrible. Terrible. Terrible how yes. and how crazy and how politics uses fear to stay in power. Yes, you know. Um, yes, it's frightening. Sometimes, you, do you think you know? Have we not learnt from the past? No, we don't. Mm. We don't. And in fact, I've got a at the beginning of Dancing with the Enemy. There's a part where people are evacuating in a panic, and mm. somebody said to me, "This is just like what I'm watching on the news. What's right happening now. in Ukraine today?" Mm. So that even though I'm writing there about people in a tiny island that might be irrelevant. It's just a microcosm mm. of, of what happens in the wider world. Mm. And people talk about boat people like these people have a choice. Who wants to risk their life and their family's life? Who wants to leave their homeland? Yes. No one does it voluntarily. No. They only do it because they can't live there anymore. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. So what made you write Mosaic? My father had told me amazing stories about his father and his 10 siblings. My father was one of 11 children. Mm. And my grandfather was a very observant Jew and he brought up his children to be very observant. Most of them rebelled, including my father. Mm. But the stories that my father told about his father his mother and the siblings, each of whom were apparently incredible characters and had astonishing stories, got me very interested. And I had it on the back burner. I think I'm a slow thinker because when you think about this book here, um, it takes me a while to realise that this is what I really want to write. Anyway, so I thought about it. Didn't do anything. But then my father's oldest brother, who was living in America, died. And I knew he had been the repository of family stories mm. forever. And I thought, they're all getting old now. If I don't do something about it now, I'm never going to be able to hear the stories. That's and right, because they go. That's right. And they were, luckily for me, the ones that survived lived a long, long life. Yeah. And so I set off for Poland, Israel, America and France where I had remaining aunts, uncles and cousins. And collected And I stories. went with my tape recorder 
and I came back with incredible stories. Mm. We're out of time. Diane Armstrong, thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.